You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. This podcast is brought to you by Coors Light. Coors Light's the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you need to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. It was January 2016. I was reporting a story in Manchester, England, and my friend Aleko Eskandarian happened to be visiting there as well. We met for dinner at the Lowry Hotel, and Aleko started telling some wild stories about what it was like to play for DC United in 2004 amid the circus of Freddie Adu's first season. I thought I knew the Freddie Adu saga pretty well. In the early 2000s, I had been all over the prodigy beat for Sports Illustrated. In 2002, I wrote SI's first cover story on a 17-year-old basketball player from Ohio, a guy named LeBron James. A year later, I heard about a 13-year-old soccer player named Freddie Adu, who was astonishing the people in the soccer community who had seen him play. So I went to US Soccer's under-17 residency program in Florida to write a magazine story about him. When I got there, I saw him myself, and I couldn't believe it. Plenty of smart soccer people told me Freddie could become the real thing the first American men's global soccer superstar. A blind man on a galloping horse could see his talent. When he had the ball at his feet, it was just electric. I don't belong on the field with this player. He's that much better than all of us. This young kid who dared anything and everything. Bottom line is, it's extraordinary. Within a year, the founder of Nike, Phil Knight, would sign Freddie to a seven-figure contract and tell me Freddie could be bigger than LeBron. I've been getting pressure since I was 10 years old. Bigger than Tiger Woods. I guess, hello world, huh? Bigger even than Michael Jordan. No, it's never enough. Seriously, the founder of Nike told me that. His reasoning? Freddie could potentially take his sport, soccer, to a completely new level in our country, something those other Nike titans couldn't do quite the same way with their sports. But in the end, as you know, Freddie never became the LeBron James of soccer. And for years, I've wondered if my coverage had played a role in that. Wondered if it was partly my fault for overselling him. Wondered if I owed Freddie an apology. And I had so many questions. What determines which phenoms make it and which ones don't? Why didn't it work out for Freddie? Was it a mistake to have started in Major League Soccer instead of in Europe? Was Freddie a failure? Can you even be a failure if you signed contracts worth millions of dollars as a teenager? And whatever happened to Freddie? I've been asking those questions ever since that dinner in England in 2016. And for four years, I've been wanting to look for the answers. This year, I finally did. Over the years, Freddie always refused media requests to look back in detail on all the events of his career. He turned down some really big documentaries. And he even said no to me when I first asked him about doing this podcast. 
But I went ahead anyway, and I interviewed nearly two dozen people from Freddie's life. Then, many weeks into the project, I got a text message that read, I'll be available on Monday if you want to give me a call then. So, Freddie, I think we've done like two dozen interviews, <laughs> but this is the most important one. And so I really appreciate you having some time for it. It's going to allow us, I think, to, to tell this story better. I had completely decided I wasn't going to do any interviews, any podcast, anything. I mean, I get bombarded with these things all the time, but they vouch for you, my man. They do. So that's why I'm here right now, man. That's why I'm here. Just to start, uh, going back to a young age. I asked Freddie all the questions I'd been waiting to ask for years, and he answered all of them. It was a tale of talent, money, fame, and football. Welcome to American Prodigy, Freddie Adu. I'm Grant Wall. March 2004, Raymond James Stadium, Tampa. I travel here for Sports Illustrated to witness, of all things, the shoot for a soft drink commercial. But this was no ordinary ad. Here, in the flesh, just off a flight from Brazil, was Pelé, the greatest soccer player of all time. In 1958, at age 17, Pelé scored twice in the World Cup final to lead Brazil to victory. He was the living definition of the term sports prodigy. In Tampa, he'd meet the athlete, the child really, being dubbed the next one. Because truth be told, the reason we were here wasn't Pelé. The reason we were here was a 14-year-old boy, an American soccer prodigy. His name, Freddie Adu. Freddie Adu, who's 31 today, was an American prodigy. But like so many Americans, his story has roots outside the U.S. Adu was born in Tama, Ghana in 1989. He spent much of his early years outside, participating in the only game around. In Ghana, that's all we did. We didn't have any other sports. It was just soccer. But in Ghana, he was just a kid kicking a ball around in dirt lots. We were out on the field. It was barefoot. There was a bunch of broken glasses and there was rocks everywhere. I mean, we would be all cut up, but we didn't care. If somebody passes you the ball, it would take a million bounces all over the place before it gets to you. So that kind of like helps you improve your technical abilities. Bad playing surfaces taught the kids sink or swim skills, how to trap a bouncing ball, keep your balance, and rely on quick touches. But it was what they watched on the manicured fields of Spain and Italy that shaped their play. They love going out on the street barefoot and just doing moves, taking people on. You watch your idols on TV and you want to like replicate what they were doing. Freddie pretended he was Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo, OG Ronaldo, only smaller. The groups of kids he'd play with on the Ghanaian lots were bigger and had been through the same technical boot camp of the streets. But even against the older competition, Freddie always found a way onto the field. They couldn't play without him. He had an uncle, that uncle that I met, who lived here in Gaithersburg. He used to send him soccer balls. That's Arnold Tarzi, Freddie's first American organized soccer coach. So he had a ball. He would go out, five, six, seven, eight years old, and he'd play with the much older neighborhood kids. They'd have to let him play because he had the ball. By the mere fact that he kept providing balls, he kept being able to play with the older kids. So he learned trial by fire in a hurry, 
While eight-year-old Freddie scrimmaged in the streets with the big kids, his parents began to look for ways to make sure their sons, Freddie and Fro, got a good education. So the Adus entered their family into the 1997 U.S. Immigration Lottery. Each year, the U.S. awards just 55,000 permanent resident visas to millions of applicants from countries all over the world. With less than a 1% chance for a coveted spot, winning the opportunity to live in the United States really was like winning the lottery. And the Adus won. The family emigrated from Ghana to the Washington, D.C. area, where relatives lived. It was a huge opportunity for the Adus to go to school in America, but it wasn't without drawbacks. Freddie's mom, Amelia, and his father, Maxwell, split soon after their arrival in the U.S., and Amelia became a single mother raising Freddie and his younger brother, Fro. We, we were well off in Ghana, but in America, we were poor. I was basically the man in the house since I was really eight, to be honest with you. Amelia soon took on two jobs and would be out of the house from dawn until dusk. Freddie looked after Fro and ran the house, locking their tiny apartment door on the way to school and unlocking it when they came home. There was no street soccer here, but Freddie still found time to get to the field between caring for Fro and going to school. Mostly, he appreciated his mom. My mom did everything she could to take care of us, and she did an amazing job being a single mother at the time. Freddie had a caring family, a safe home, and was getting an education. Soccer was still Freddie's passion, but it took a back seat to adjusting to living in a new country. For a while, it was just a fun thing Freddie did with friends at school. But it's hard to hide talent. We were just playing soccer at recess, and one of the kids, he said that, hey, you're really good at soccer. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, that's all I do. I played it my whole life. Next thing I know, they contact my mother somehow. I don't know how they got her number. My mom was working like two jobs at the time. She was barely home and they asked me to be a guest player for their team. They weren't a good team by any means. We ended up playing against Arnold's team, which is the Potomac Cougars, in the finals. Now I had scored basically all the team's goals up until then. So we're in the finals. This team's never been in the finals before. And they were like, oh my gosh, the team we're going to play against is like the best team in the state, blah, blah, blah. We got there and we won that game 2-0. I scored both goals. After that loss, the coach, Arnold Tarzi, didn't waste time starting to recruit the mysterious kid who was younger than everybody else. The kid who appeared out of nowhere like an apparition. He didn't have much information to go on. I had asked a couple of parents, does anybody know where this kid's from? You know, the rumor had spread through the field that day that he wasn't on that team. He just showed up at the suggestion of a friend who was on that team. Well, through some detective work over the next 48 hours, I found out who he was. Two days later, I'm in his living room with paperwork to get him on our team. So that was that. At eight years old, Freddie had shown skills, athleticism, and a feel for the game that kids years older than him didn't even dream about. Freddie's breakout performance in organized soccer had gotten him noticed. Now he had a club team and an outlet to show his skill. After joining the Cougars, it didn't take long for Freddie to become a sort of soccer urban legend. Two days later, he was in my car and we were driving to Richmond, Virginia for a tournament where the tournament ended with him having a free kick where he hit it with so much hook and spin that it got all tangled up in the top of the net and then the goalie had to be lifted on the shoulders of somebody else to get the ball untangled just to make it even worse. 
everybody there, of course, all the parents wanted to know if they could see his driver's license because they figured he must have driven there. It sounds like the plot to a 90s Disney movie. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. A kid goes from playing at recess to dragging a bad team to a tournament victory to dominating kids older than him at the club level all in less than a week. It's basically the plot of The Mighty Ducks. But this wasn't scripted, and it was happening fast for an eight-year-old. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle and bustle all the time. And all of us could stand to hit that reset button now and again. And when you do, make sure you do it with a nice cold Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment straight from the Rockies. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. So next time you're able to sit at a baseball stadium, the sun's hot, and that vendor walks by, say, sir, I'd like a nice cold Coors Light. Coors Light's the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you need to hit that reset button, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company in Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Guys, getting older isn't always fun, but it could be, and Roman is here to help. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation for erectile dysfunction and hair loss, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. A U.S.-licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet, so complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Prodigy now to get $15 off your first month. That's GetRoman.com slash Prodigy. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. Freddie's legend kept growing. When he was 10, he went to Italy with a team from the U.S. Olympic Development Program for an under-14 tournament against top Italian clubs. Not only did Freddie's team win the competition, but he led the tournament in scoring and was named the MVP. Afterward, two reps from the storied club Inter Milan visited his mom in Tarzi and made her a six-figure contract offer for a 10-year-old. Amelia refused, saying Freddie was too young. But Freddie's next step was still a big one. In 1999, the U.S. Soccer Federation had set up a residency program at the IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida, for the best players under 17 in America. The program had already produced a crop of stars, including Landon Donovan, Demarcus Beasley, and Aguchi Onyewu. In 2001, when Freddie was 11, they invited him to come live at what was basically Hogwarts for sports. Yes, there was an accelerated high school there, but the focus was soccer. When I visited the campus for the first time in 2003, I couldn't believe what I saw. Gorgeous training fields, first-rate exercise facilities, sunny weather year-round. In just three years, Freddie had gone from playing on the streets of Ghana to living at a young soccer player's paradise. 
Current Nashville MLS TV commentator and former pro Jamie Watson got to experience the grandeur of Bradenton with Freddie in the early 2000s. It is a sports heaven, IMG. It's got soccer from the men and women's side. There's tennis, there's golf, there's baseball. We lived in a dorm with three rooms in it. But just on the other side of it is a million-dollar tennis court that Nick Boletari has built himself that you could look over and see Anna Kornikova training one day. Serena Williams was there one day. The who's who of the tennis world would flock there. You're a 16-year-old, 15-year-old kid walking there in a completely closed-off environment with some of the biggest sports celebrities in the tennis world and in the golf world, every world that you can imagine At IMG, for the first time in his life, Freddie didn't have to be the man of the house and could focus on soccer. It was just the ideal scenario for a player of of his talents, but also his background. That's Thomas Rongen, a current TV soccer analyst. At the time, he was coach of the U.S. under-20 men's national team. You know, you got an immigrant kid that went through a lot in his home country, a little bit of a broken family, poor then gets all of a sudden in, in an environment where he's guided each and every day, where they train twice a day, where they play more games together than any other even club team in the world. That two or three year was in an environment that not too many other players of his caliber probably didn't even come close to. There was only one problem at first. Freddie couldn't stand it. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I was 11 years old at the time. Everybody else was already, what, 14? 14? 14-year-olds don't have anything in common with 11-year-olds. I had completely different interests than they did. So I really, I didn't have any friends on the team. I was just there because my mom, with the help of Arnold and John Ellinger, they all thought it was the best thing for me because I always wanted to be a professional soccer player. So they thought this was the best path for me at the time. Jamie Watson was one of the 14-year-olds, but he understood where Freddie was coming from. Even for the bigger kids, the opportunity at IMG was equal parts exhilarating and intimidating. It's a sports heaven, but when you're in the midst of it, to be honest, it's a difficult prospect because it is a stark contrast from what everyday life is like before you get there. And if you don't have the proper mindset going into it, it can be a daunting task. But if you were up for the challenge, it was the single decision that changed the entire trajectory of all of our careers. In 2002, John Ellinger was the coach of the U.S. Under-17 team, the first national team Freddie would play for. He was watching Freddie closely to see how he'd react to Bradenton's challenges of better competition and an exacting environment. Being so young, socially, you were worried, how is he going to do in this environment? He did well. I mean, his always thing was, coach, if I'm good enough, I'm old enough. And we kind of used that all the way through. Despite not making friends and being hundreds of miles away from his family, Freddie wasn't completely alone at IMG. He met Trevor Moad, a mental conditioning coach at IMG Academy, whom Freddie's mom had encouraged to help her son. Freddie's mom came up to me and said, I'm so grateful and thankful that you're here. Make sure you stay in Freddie's life significantly. And I said, absolutely. And then it got quiet and she looked at me and she said, forever. And it was a really weird sort of uh, foreshadowing moment. Moad is well-known these days for his work with NFL quarterback Russell Wilson and the Alabama football team. But he also became a confidant for Freddie, 
serving as a mentor and friend for an 11-year-old who hadn't made many friends yet. Freddie was in pretty much every week, multiple times, to hang out or to work throughout the three-plus years. I think it was probably the longest tenured because of his age in Bradenton. Unburdened from being the man of the house and surrounded by the rising stars of U.S. soccer, Freddie focused on his game. Despite playing up with teenagers at age 11, he had always been the best player on the field. At IMG, he wasn't. Yet. When I first got there, I wasn't even top 10. So I had nothing to do but to work on my soccer game. And that's all I did. Six to eight months in, it got better. It got much better. You know, the guys saw that I was good at soccer and and they started taking to me a little bit more. I became one of the best players there six months into it. One of Freddie's new friends was Jamie Watson. Watson arrived at Bradenton with a broken foot and was rehabbing during Freddie's early stages there. When Watson was healthy enough to take the field, he saw a focused, hungry Freddie Adu. He's the best player I'd ever seen. And if anybody tells you at 14 years old that they've ever seen a better player, they're lying to you. I watched him in training rainbow the ball over players. And these are some of the best players in the world, right? Where there's 30 players down in this residency program, handpicked from scouts all around the country, and it looked like it was in slow motion for him. I remember just being almost in awe at times of just how good he was. Freddie wasn't just good against other gifted kids either. The U.S. under-17s played all kinds of teams, including friendlies against professionals. Even then, Freddie caught people's attention. Here's John Ellinger. We played against this team from Finland. They were there for Bradenton for spring training, preparing for the start of their season, obviously, in Finland. And they had made it into Champions League. So they were on top of the division. And Freddie beats four adult male defenders in the box. He gets fouled and gets a, gets a penalty kick. At halftime, I just said, Freddie, I can't wait till you're 13. Once Freddie turned 13, those moments of brilliance became even more commonplace. By 2003, Freddie's legend had spread beyond the IMG Academy. That's when I heard about him. Convinced I had another LeBron James on my hands, I persuaded my editors at Sports Illustrated to send me to Florida and interview Freddie and watch him play. His skill was incredible, both in person and in the videos they showed me. Respected coaches said he was the real thing. And when I finally interviewed Freddie, his charisma was off the charts. After we were done, I called my editor from the parking lot and said, you aren't going to believe this kid is real, but he is. But the biggest question most people had then was, is he really 13 years old? Part of that had to do with where Freddie was born. Over the years, a large number of standout soccer prospects from African countries have later been shown to be older than they said they were. The reason for misrepresenting your age is simple. The younger an athlete is, the more potential that athlete has, and the greater the chance of earning contracts with sports teams and endorsement deals. For that Sports Illustrated story I was working on, we even hired someone in Ghana to independently locate Freddie's birth certificate. As with a lot of kids born in Ghana, Freddie's certificate wasn't filed until a while after his birth. But the one we located had the birth date he stated. In the end, we reported that we couldn't find any evidence that he was older than he said he was. But the questions would persist, as legends tend to sprout myths and conspiracies. 
Freddy's legend continued to grow, and it extended even to Manchester United, the most popular club in the world. In the spring of 2003, I was part of a small group of U.S. journalists that visited Man United and got interviews with its legendary manager, Sir Alex Ferguson. If you could believe it, Sir Alex asked one of us for Freddie Adu's phone number. He was that interested. Not surprisingly, Freddie's legend found its way into the circle of the top American soccer agents, which wasn't too large of a circle at the time. A lot of times I would walk in and there wouldn't be any other agent, right? You know, as, as great as I think I might have been, I didn't really have competition. That's Richard Motzkin. He founded the agency Sportsnet represented Landon Donovan, Alexi Lawless, and other U.S. soccer stars, and, spoiler alert, was about to become Freddie's agent. You know, but in Freddie's case, it was very different because Freddie's star sort of rose so quickly, even before he signed. Motzkin made multiple trips to Maryland and Bradenton to earn the trust of the most important people in Freddie's life, including his mother, his extended family, and his childhood coach, Arnold Tarzi. Uh, you know, I remember vividly, you know, taking trips out to D.C. with Freddie and his family, his mom, Amelia, as well as the rest of the family members who were part of the process and then built a relationship with them over time. With his agent in tow, Freddie was soon traveling to Oregon to meet Nike CEO Phil Knight and signing something unimaginable for a 13-year-old, a four-year, $1 million Nike contract. It was the coolest thing for me. It really was. I loved guys like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and they were with Nike. I wasn't interested in anything else at the time, but just to sign with Nike. The deal was more than just cool. After I signed with Nike, we moved to Rockville to a bigger house. My mom, till today, has not worked a day in her life since, since that day. To me, it's the best thing I ever did in my life. The deal also meant Freddie was going pro. The next stop the 2003 FIFA Under-17 World Championship in Finland. Freddie, 13, was the youngest player in the tournament and ready to prove himself on an international stage. The World Championship would become the unveiling of America's prodigy and the chance for Freddie to show what he could do to teams in MLS and Europe who might compete with each other to sign him. Sports Illustrated didn't want to pay to send me there, but I was so intrigued after my story from earlier that year that I paid out of my own pocket for a plane ticket to Finland. I wanted to write a book about Freddie, and I figured I had to be there for this moment, to watch firsthand in a tiny soccer stadium at the bottom of a ski jump hill in a Finnish town called Lati. If I'm being honest, I was obsessed with sports prodigies at that point. My 2002 story on LeBron James already looked ahead of its time by the fall of 2003 when LeBron was just starting his rookie NBA season. And Freddie seemed like he could do the same thing at an even younger age. But compared to LeBron, Freddie was much harder to see play. LeBron's high school games were broadcast on ESPN, while Freddie's under-17 world championship games were near impossible to find. Even Fox Sports broadcaster Rob Stone, who was with ESPN at the time, had trouble seeing the Finland games. It was one of those events that's really hard to find on television now and imagine what it was back then. And so you would almost kind of get like these pirated highlights that may or may not appear on some device somehow in your room or in a work studio. But that didn't matter. People found a way to watch the legend grow. This was kind of 
pre-social media, but it was amazing how the news of this young phenom at the Youth World Cup just overtook everybody and popped. Here with Freddie was an emerging talent, whether it was on pixelated streams or obscure channels deep on the satellite menu. Kevin Payne, who ran MLS's DC United, made a point to tune in and see Freddie. And I don't even remember how we were seeing those games then, but we obviously were paying attention. It was very obvious, as, as Ray Hudson, who was our coach at the time, once said, a blind man on a galloping horse could see his talent. In the 16th minute of the U.S.'s first game against South Korea, Adu got the ball 45 yards from goal and went to work. I'll never forget what I saw from the top row of the stadium that day. Adu. Wonderful skill from Freddie Adu. Is this the perfect solo goal? It must be. Stunning skill from one of the world's young sensations. Starting with his back to goal, surrounded by South Koreans, Freddie turned and attacked. With lightning quick dribbles, he split two defenders, darted forward, and beat two more. The goalie was rushing at him, but Freddie pushed the ball wide with his favorite left foot, beat the keeper, and finished with a breathtaking whoosh that defied the imagination. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. A Premier League scout sitting next to me turned and said, he's going to be the best player in the world someday. It reminded me a little bit of Johan Cruyff's goal in 1980. Washington Diplomats against the Seattle Sounders. That was awarded the goal of the year. He gets the ball almost in the same pocket, so he breaks two guys. with that tremendous acceleration, breaking through two defenders. Great clean first touch, second touch, change of direction and change of speed. Now easing up, displaying the coolness as he cuts to his left. And then he slaloms like Freddie around some people. Climbing superb, beating the goalkeeper Jack Brand on the right-hand side of the net. Goal of the year for Johan Cruyff of Washington. When I saw that, the first flashback I had was, wow, that, that was Cruyff-like. While Thomas Rogan saw the ghost of his old teammate Johan Cruyff, the greatest midfielder of all time, that goal was only the beginning. The U.S. would go on to crush South Korea 6-1, to one, and Adu had a hat trick. Even Freddie was surprised. Finland was where I knew I could be really, really, really special. The fact that I was able to do what I was able to do, that really opened my eyes to the possibilities. As the blowout unfolded, Freddie's agent, Richard Motzkin, and MLS Deputy Commissioner Ivan Gazidis sat next to each other in the stadium exchanging wide-eyed looks. Gazidis, who's now the CEO at AC Milan, shook his head and smiled. It's almost an inevitable, immutable law that when you're trying to sign a, a young player and you are just entering into discussions that they're going to have some breakout performance right in front of your eyes while you're sitting within eyeshot of their agent. It's an immutable law. Obviously, Rich and I know each other well, and you know, we both knew what was in front of us. And, uh, yeah, we, we exchanged a, a knowing look at each other. After each goal, him looking at me and just like with this face, oh, my God, the price is going up. On one hand, obviously being happy for the U.S. and for Freddie because it's ultimately good for American soccer. But on the other hand, sort of just looking at me a little bit with this chagrin look going, okay, Rich, what do you want? MLS and soccer clubs from around the world watched as Freddie finished the tournament with four goals leading the U.S. in scoring before the team lost to Brazil in the quarterfinals. 
With his performance in Finland, Freddie had shown he was ready to sign a pro contract. Freddie was being offered professional opportunities, and it was clear that he was going to do that. And the question was, was he going to do it in Major League Soccer or was he going to do it in, in Europe? Adu and Motskin had more leverage than ever. And it wasn't a one-party bidding war. Motskin's phone was ringing with calls from clubs all over Europe. There was a lot of conversations, not only with MLS, but with foreign clubs at that time as well. Inter, AC Milan, PSV, Ajax, Chelsea, Man U. They were big-name clubs. FIFA has rules preventing the transfer of minors between countries, and Freddie was still only 14 years old. But those regulations were relatively new and not entirely adhered to. There were a lot of questions about the FIFA regulations and so on, but there were probably ways to step to the side of those regulations. This was ultimately would have been, Freddie was on a development path, so... A club that was signing him in Europe wouldn't necessarily be expecting him to play straight away. The European clubs had more resources, more clout, and dealt with kids Freddie's age all the time. MLS, on the other hand, had the comforts of home and the ability for Freddie to play first-team soccer from the start, something that was very important to Freddie. I just loved touching the ball, man. Do moves, shoot the ball. I love the feeling of when you hit a ball and you catch it just right. The feeling that you have just blasting a ball into the net or just a great pass over the top of, you know, a great through ball. I just, I loved all of that. It was what I was born to do, man. It was. As a prodigy, Freddie had been playing regularly, starting every game from the Potomac Cougars to the under-17 national team. Freddie loved playing time, simply loved playing the game. With a European club, Freddie would probably sit or at least be on the reserve team. If he went to MLS, Freddie would play, possibly from day one, and be the biggest star in the league. It is with enormous pride and excitement that we announce today that Major League Soccer has reached a long-term agreement with young Mr. Freddie Adu, one of the most accomplished young soccer players in the world. Ultimately, Freddie signed with MLS on the condition that he get to play at home for D.C. United. The league agreed to that. And as a single-entity organization where all the owners are in business together, they forced Dallas, which had the number one overall draft pick, to do a trade with D.C. United for the rights to pick a due. Kevin Payne ran D.C. United. Well, I don't think they were particularly happy about it, but it, basically they didn't have a lot of choice. We did have to give up real value to Dallas. It wasn't something where the league just said, here you go. On November 21st, 2003, Freddie signed a deal with MLS paying him $500,000 a year, one of the league's highest salaries, with the understanding that DC United would take him in the upcoming draft. How did I feel at the time about Freddie deciding to sign with an MLS team? It made sense to me. FIFA rules, new in those days, were made to protect young players and prevent them from moving to a new country before they turned 18. So Freddie might not have been able to sign in Europe, even if he'd wanted to. Besides, from my perspective, Freddie had already handled himself fine in friendlies against older, professional MLS teams. Moving up to competitive games would be a challenge, but it didn't seem like one he couldn't handle. Still, when he was presented as an MLS player in New York City, the 14-year-old kid wanted people to know 
that going pro didn't necessarily mean he was growing up. You know, I do all that stuff my friends do, and, and that, I don't want that to ever change. I don't want it to get too serious where I just, you know, everything's business now, and then I can't be a kid. You know, that would just burn me out. I don't want to get burned out. Nothing about that kid had changed when he took the field in Tampa a few months later for the commercial shoot with Pelé. As I watched from the side that day, Pelé hid behind someone and jumped out to surprise Freddy, who had no idea the Brazilian legend would be there. Less than two years earlier, I had seen 17-year-old LeBron James interact with Michael Jordan, and this moment felt similar, charged, momentous, the past and the future of the sport. Freddie jumped into Pele's arms and they posed for a picture, one that I used to keep on a wall of my apartment. They shot the commercial that afternoon and they seemed to have fun. And when they were done and saying their goodbyes, Pele leaned in and said something to Freddie. I couldn't hear at the time. So I asked Freddie what Pele said. Don't let them change you. Keep working on your game. Keep working on what makes you different and what makes you special. It was great advice, but in this country, I think it caused me some problems. I, I didn't want to be changed. I wanted to give the teams my best, but you know, I learned <laughs> I learned earlier on that. I had to sort of maybe tweak my game a little bit to be able to get opportunities on the field. But what could change Freddie do? Soccer is going to explode and it's going to be around this kid. I remember the league calling him the best player of his age in the world. The next Maradona, the next Pele. Felt like we were the Beatles. Everywhere we went, it was the Freddie show. And fans were flocking to the hotel in the lobby. This is the savior. This is going to be the player that takes us to the promised land. And with that came the expectation. And with that came the pressure. That's next time on American Prodigy. This Blue Wire podcast was hosted, reported, and co-written by me, Grant Wall. Harry Swartout produced and co-wrote the show. Reed Redmond and Jeffrey Besoy provided production assistance. Brian Decker scored the podcast and engineered the sound. John Yales and Peter Moses executive produced the show. If you liked American Prodigy, subscribe and give us a rating and a review. It helps the podcast get to more people. Or you can go all 2004 on us and simply tell a friend.